We'll read this morning from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is the Great Commission. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. You know that I often begin my sermons by sharing a quote uh, from someone concerning uh, the main doctrine or the main topic of the sermon. And this week I searched for one to share with you, uh, and that search was uh, in vain. Uh, I probably could have pulled a quote from the video that we watched this morning in CLA, and if you weren't there for that, um, I can send you the link if you're interested, but it, they spoke a lot about the Great Commission in that video, and there were a couple of good quotes I probably could have pulled, but I searched online and I couldn't find one that I liked to begin the sermon with. I found a lot of quotes about the Great Commission, but most of them, honestly, were either using the Great Commission in order to condemn other Christians, or they simply missed what I believe is the main point of the Great Commission. Uh, this is a passage that we're very familiar with. We've heard it a lot. Uh, you may have even memorized it. Uh, I'm sure that you've heard it uh, quoted many times in sermons or missions presentations. And it is an appropriate passage for that. It is about missions but I fear that often the main point of the Great Commission is overlooked. The focus is usually on the command to go with an emphasis on going to the nations. And this is an important component of the Great Commission, but if we focus solely on that, I'm afraid that oftentimes we miss the bigger picture of what is being communicated here concerning Christ. All month long, our theme has been Emmanuel, God with us. And we've drawn that out and we've seen that Christ is the eternal God, that, that he is almighty, holy, holy, holy. We've seen that Christ was a man possessing a human nature, born of a woman, born of a virgin, and so without inherited sin from Adam. He was a perfect man, and therefore he was an acceptable sacrifice as a substitute in the place of sinful men. We, we've seen that the divine nature and the human nature of Christ were united together, not mixed, not mingled, not altered, not becoming something other than what they were, still a divine nature and a fully human nature. And we've seen that this union of the two natures in the one divine person qualified him to serve as the mediator of the new covenant, prophet, priest, and king to his people. And what I want us to see this morning is that all of that and more 
is part of what is being communicated here in the Great Commission. Now, it's not an accident that Matthew begins and ends his gospel with the promise of Emmanuel. Consider that Matthew begins his gospel with uh, Christ's human genealogy, and he makes a point of calling attention to two particular figures in that genealogy, Abraham and David, both of whom are important to our discussion this morning. But then he follows that genealogy with a narrative of the birth of Christ in which Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, he says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, and now he quotes from Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew tells us, which is translated God with us. So the story of the incarnation of Christ begins by telling us that he is God with us. Matthew then ends his account of the life and ministry of Christ by quoting the risen Lord as saying, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So Matthew's gospel is bookended by the promise of Christ as Emmanuel, God with us. At the beginning, he is God with us in the flesh. And at the end, he is risen. He is about to ascend into heaven to to take his place seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet he promises that he will be with us to the end of the age. And so what what does that mean? And that's our, our topic for this morning, and I believe the main point of the Great Commission. Now, to understand why this is the main point of the Great Commission, we need to not only understand the context of Emmanuel, God with us, in Matthew's gospel, but we need to know our Bible. We need to know the Old Testament, Uh, Too often, I think we miss significant and beautiful depths of meaning in New Testament passages because we don't know the Old Testament as well as we ought to. As Augustine has said, the New Testament is in the old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the new revealed. That is, the New Testament is organically connected to the Old Testament. They make up one Bible, one Holy Scripture The New Testament was not written in a vacuum. Christ and the apostles uh, and the New Testament authors, they spoke and they wrote with New Testament, Old Testament language. They used Old Testament themes and ideas to such a great extent that while the basic message of the gospel can be derived from the New Testament alone, the depths and the riches of it can only be seen when the New Testament is read through the lens of the Old Testament. So I want us to try and understand the Great Commission this morning in its canonical context of the whole of Scripture, especially its Old Testament background. And so we need to begin by understanding that God is a covenant God. And what I mean by that is that God as God is so far above his creation, so far above his creatures in holiness, in righteousness, in justice, in power, in all of the things that make him God. 
He's so far above us that although we owe him obedience as his creatures, we can never come up to his level. We can never obey him and worship him in the manner that he truly deserves. We can never attain the reward of life in his presence by our own power. And so if we as sinful creatures are to have a relationship with this transcendent God, then it must be that he will voluntarily initiate that relationship and make it possible in some way. He sets the terms of our relationship to him. He establishes our relationship to him by his grace. And the way that he does so is by way of covenant. Now, a covenant is not simply a contract between two equal parties. Right? A covenant and a contract are two different things. A, a covenant is a binding commitment between a sovereign Lord and his subjects. It involves the Lord imposing upon his subjects obedience to his commands and at the same time promising them protection from their Lord. There are sanctions for disobedience. There are blessings for obedience. Samuel Renahan comments and says, Covenants are not take-it-or-leave-it options. God imposes his covenants on man and determines the commitments. Yet this language of non-negotiability and imposition should not prevent us from seeing covenants as a gracious and kind condescension. Every covenant provides blessings and benefits for man that would otherwise be unavailable. Covenants advance man's communion with and enjoyment of God beyond nature. So this is how God relates to his creatures. He is our sovereign Lord, and we enter into communion with him by means of covenant. And so we see covenants all through the Old Testament. And we see that the first feature of covenants is usually God declaring himself to be the God of the covenant, to be the one who is in authority in order to establish such a covenant. The only covenant in the Old Testament where this is not explicitly stated is the covenant with Adam in the garden. And this is because Adam uh, had not yet sinned when this covenant was made. And so he, he knew God uh, in a sinless way. He knew his creator uh, in a way uh, th- that we don't uh, because he was sinless. But we see it with Abraham when God comes to Abraham to establish his covenant This says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you. So God announces himself. He establishes his right to initiate a covenant and to demand Abram's obedience to that covenant by declaring himself to be the self-existent I am the Almighty God. We see this same thing again when God establishes a covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. You shall therefore, 
So God, again, announces himself as the one who is in authority, imposing the covenant on Israel, and they must obey him because he is the covenant God. We'll come back to this verse in Deuteronomy in a moment because it's key to our understanding of the Great Commission. We see a similar thing when God establishes a covenant with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheephold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. So God announces himself as the Lord of hosts, the God who has armies, the God who has the authority to establish and impose a covenant even on a king. The point is, God announces himself to be the covenant God and imposes his covenants with men as their sovereign Lord. Now, this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. You shall therefore. See, he's the sovereign Lord. He is the God of heaven above and of the earth beneath. And when Christ gives the great commission to his church, he says the same thing about himself. All authority has been given to me in heaven above and on the earth beneath. This is covenantal language. Christ is announcing himself to be the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He is establishing his covenant with his followers. This is the language of the Old Testament scriptures, particularly Deuteronomy. And if we recognize it as such, it changes our understanding of the Great Commission because now we begin to see these closing words of Christ's earthly ministry as covenantal language built on the covenants of the Old Testament. Christ is the sovereign Lord of the new covenant. Now, there are several things to note in this regard. First, as the eternal God, Christ has the authority to establish this covenant by divine right. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Secondly, as a man, Christ has, given, has been given this authority to be the mediator of the new covenant. And this is in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Daniel chapter 7, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. See, Christ in the Great Commission is claiming for himself that he is the son of man prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. He is the Messiah of Old Testament prophecy. He's not only the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, he's also the Son of Man, the one appointed by God to be the Lord of creation and to rule the kingdom forever, both in heaven and on earth. Now, what this means for us as believers and as a church, when we consider the Great Commission and, and the instructions that our covenant God gives us here, 
What this means is that the whole of creation belongs to Christ, including the whole earth and every nation on it. It belongs to him by right of creation. He is the creator God. It belongs to him by right of redemption. He has purchased it with his blood. He gave himself, Paul says in Colossians 1.20, to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The whole earth belongs to him by right of inheritance. The Father has promised him all things. And this means that wherever we go on earth as Christians, as a church, not just a local church, but as the church Catholic or the church universal, wherever we go to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are on property that is owned by our covenant Lord. There's not one square inch of creation over which Christ does not proclaim mine. And for the Great Commission, what this means, as Christopher Wright put it in his book, The Mission of God, it means that mission is an authorized activity carried out by tenants on the instruction of the owner of the property. He owns it all. The whole world belongs to him. And so if he tells us to go and to do something in the world, we do so on the authority of the owner of the property. This should give us a boldness and an assurance as we go about obeying our covenant Lord and keeping his commands. He's not sending us somewhere he doesn't have the authority to send us. The whole earth is his. Lapeer County is his. Michigan is his. The United States is his. The entire globe is his. Wherever we go to make disciples, Christ is Lord, whether that's here or in the bush somewhere in Africa. It doesn't matter. Christ is Lord no matter where we go. Now, this is necessary to the proclamation of the gospel that we understand this because how could we go and proclaim to people the promise of everlasting life in his name? unless he had the authority to grant it. All authority is his in heaven and on earth. So we, we don't go about the task of making disciples on our own authority, but on the authority of the sovereign covenant Lord. The gospel has authority in the name of Christ, not in our name. Now, the second aspect of covenants that we see in the scripture is that the Lord of the covenant, then after he announces himself, he imposes on his subjects commands that they are obligated to obey. Consider the covenant with Adam in the garden. Genesis 1, verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Commands given by God to Adam, a commission. Then in chapter two, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
God gave Adam commands in the garden. He gave him a commission, positive commands to fill the earth, to take dominion over it, to subdue it, to tend and keep the garden. And he gave him negative commands. Don't eat from that tree. Now to Abraham, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. It's in Genesis 12, and then again in Genesis 17, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And to David, God commanded him in 2 Samuel 7 that he was to be a ruler over my people Israel. But of course, the covenant with Moses is the one we think of when we think of commandments, right? It contains the most laws and commandments, summarized in the Ten Commandments, but also containing the ceremonial laws of the temple and the judicial laws of the nation. Of all those laws, God repeatedly says in Deuteronomy, therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. Now, this refrain to be careful to obey his commandments is repeated 12 times in the book of Deuteronomy, one of which states, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. This is what we call the regulative principle. It means that God's people are obligated by the terms of the covenant to obey his commands. We're not free to invent our own ways of worshiping him, our own ways of obeying him. Scripture alone regulates our worship. It tells us how we are to worship our covenant Lord, how we are to go about keeping his commandments Christ says the same thing in the Great Commission, verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. In this regard, the new covenant is like the covenants of the Old Testament. We are obligated to be careful to obey our Lord's commands and not to invent our own ways of obeying him, our own ways of worshiping him. That would be disobedience, not obedience. We make disciples for Christ, not disciples for ourselves. Therefore, he sets the terms. He is the covenant Lord. He declares how we are to worship him, how we are to go about fulfilling his commands. We're obligated to his words, to his instructions, to his institution, not our own. Now, as to his commands, like the covenant with Moses in Deuteronomy, there are many commands in the New Testament, summarized in loving God and loving our neighbor. But the Great Commission itself, much like the commission given to Adam in the garden, contains some specific commands. There are four. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. Four commands, but these four commands are not equally weighted. In fact, one of them is the primary command of the Great Commission. The other three are attendant to it. The primary command here is to make disciples. This is akin to the commandment given to Adam. 
to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Similarly, we are to bear spiritual fruit and to fill the earth with worshipers. Pastor John Piper has stated that missions exist because worship doesn't. What he means is that the cause of missions is to make worshipers. That's why we have missions, because there are people over there who aren't worshiping Christ. This is exactly right. That's the whole point of missions, to make disciples who will worship the covenant Lord. The other three commands here are subordinate to this one command to make disciples. Now, to make disciples means to evangelize, to proselytize, to to train and instruct others so that they may be students of Christ along with us. This is far more than simply getting someone to say a prayer. This is a total change of heart and mind. It's a dedication of life. It's submission of obedience to the gospel. Repent and believe in Christ. It involves instruction from the beginning, instruction in the basics of the gospel message, what we are to believe. And this happens before baptism. This is why the early church developed catechisms to instruct new converts. It's why they developed the Apostles' Creed to summarize the basics of the Christian faith. New converts in the second and third century were required uh, to be catechized and to memorize the Apostles' Creed before they were admitted to the rite of baptism. One commentator has said this, but as Christ enjoins them to teach before baptizing, and desires that none but believers shall be committed to baptism, it would appear that baptism is not properly administered unless when it is preceded by faith. Now, you might think some Baptist in church history made such a statement, but in fact, this is a quote from the commentary of John Calvin on the Great Commission. Now, he goes on, inconsistently to make a roundabout argument in favor of infant baptism. But his first comment here is correct. The Great Commission requires faith before baptism. And they are to be baptized, Christ tells us, into the triune name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the Father who reconciles us to himself through the sacrifice of the Son by the application of redemption to us by the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is a Trinitarian work through and through. And so baptism is a pledge of covenant loyalty to God. And it is a sign before men of our reconciliation to the Father through our engrafting into our union with Christ by the washing of the Holy Spirit. It's to be done in the name of all three members of the Trinity, the great three in one. Now, after baptism, the work doesn't end. The the disciple is then to be instructed and to be taught to obey Christ in all things. This is fulfilled in the ongoing pulpit ministry of local churches. And this is why the primary focus of all evangelism and all missions must be the establishment of local churches. In the video we watched this morning, Paul Washer said that the Great Commission is not primarily the work of the local church. It is exclusively the work of the local church. 
The Great Commission is left unfulfilled if the conversion of sinners is seen as the end of the work. The commission obligates us to the continued work of discipleship in the church. And this brings us back to the first command, the command to go. When those involved with missions speak of the Great Commission, this is usually the command they make primary, while it is, in fact, subordinate to the command to make disciples. It's an assumption based on circumstances in obedience to the command of our Lord to make disciples. He is the Lord of heaven and all the earth. We are to make disciples, to fill the earth with worshipers. We have to go. It's not an option. The new covenant is no longer, it's not limited to the, the ethnic boundaries of Judaism. As Christopher Wright has said, he commanded them to make disciples, but since he now commands them to make disciples of the nations, having previously restricted their mission to the borders of Israel during his earthly lifetime, they will have to go to the nations as a necessary condition of obeying the primary command to make disciples. Obedience to the Great Commission extends the covenant membership beyond the borders of Israel to the entire world. Wherever the gospel is faithfully preached, no matter the ethnicity, the nationality, it doesn't matter. Humans descended from Adam are to be redeemed by Christ, the second Adam. Now, we have to be careful here that we don't fall into another error, which is becoming common in our day, unfortunately. We, we're not to disciple the nations as nations. Right? Our, the commission is not that we are to go and establish Christian nations, Rather, we are to make disciples of people who are from all the nations. We're not to seek to make Christian nations. We're to seek to make Christians and to turn the nations Christian from the inside out. The sending to the ends of the earth was there in the Old Testament, concealed in what the Apostle Paul calls a mystery. But the New Testament makes explicit what was only hinted at in the Old Testament. The redemption promised by the Messiah was not for the Jews alone, but for all of humanity descended from Adam. And then to fulfill this commission must involve the church spreading beyond the borders of Jerusalem, beyond the borders of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we are commanded and authorized to do this, to spread in this manner by the Lord of heaven and earth, who has all authority. So the command to go, while it is not primary to the Great Commission, is descended from the primary command to make disciples, but that command to go carries the weight and the authority of the one who owns the nations. The final component of all covenants is that of blessing and curses or sanctions. The covenant with Adam in the garden carried with it the sanction of the curse. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now implicit 
in the covenant with Adam in the garden was the promise of everlasting rest in the presence of the Creator. Had Adam uh, remained faithful and obedient, he would have obtained that rest. He would have obtained something better than what he had at the beginning. But he didn't. He disobeyed. He broke the covenant. And so all of humanity suffered the consequences of the curse the covenant sanctions because of his sin. He was expelled from the garden and away from the presence of the Lord. Likewise, in the covenant with Abraham, we see something similar. In Genesis chapter 17, where God establishes the parameters of the covenant, he imposes the covenant commands of circumcision, and he says that the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. But there was a promise of blessing for obedience to the covenant. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to you and your descendants, to be God to you and your descendants after you. To be God to you is a promise of God's presence with the family of Abraham. That to David, he had said, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Sanctions, discipline and punishment, but promised blessing of God's presence with the line of David. Ultimately, David's sons failed, and Israel was expelled from the land and scattered among the nations. The terms of the Mosaic Covenant dictated this. If the people broke the covenant, God had threatened, I will call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed." The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Sanctions if they did not obey the covenant commands. But there was the promise of blessing for their obedience. The Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. The promised blessing is always life in the presence of the covenant God. Now, this is attended by other promises, promises of the land, of the whole earth, of peace in the nation, of milk and honey. But the main promise is always the presence of God with his people. The other blessings flow from that. They are accomplished by the presence of God with his people. And so when Christ gives the great commission to his church, he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The promise and the blessing of the new covenant is the presence of our covenant Lord Jesus with his church. He empowers his church. He commands his church. He guides his church. And he promises to preserve his church until his return. And this is not just for the apostles in the first generation of believers. This is a promise that he will be present with his people always, even to the end of the age. 
the end of the age, being that time when he returns in glory to gather his people to himself. The promised blessing of his presence is for the whole church from generation to generation until the end. Though he is not physically present with us, he is present by his spirit, which he sent to dwell in each individual Christian and to be present in a special way when they are gathered together in local churches. So we call this passage at the end of Mark's gospel the Great Commission. Do you know what makes it great? It's great for three reasons. It's great because it was given to us by a great Christ. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. All authority is his. Not some authority, not most authority, not all authority within a limited sphere. All authority is his in heaven and on earth. He is a great king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is none like him. And so the great commission is great because it's given to us by a great Christ. Second, the great commission is great because it comprehends all of Christian life. It's concerned with the conversion of sinners, the miracle of the new birth, spiritual life coming to those who are spiritually dead in their sins. But it also comprehends the ongoing work of discipleship in the church, teaching those who have been born anew into the kingdom to obey their great God and King in all things. See, the Great Commission is great because it concerns the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of saints. Third, the Great Commission is great because, as we have seen this morning, it is grounded in the eternal decree of the immutable God. Its roots run throughout the history of redemption, from Christ our Lord to the throne of David to the covenant of law with Moses to the call of Abraham to the original commission given to Adam in the garden. The purpose of God remains steadfast and unchanging in the world. If we consider the work that we're called to in the Great Commission, make disciples of all the nations, if we tried to complete that in our own power, we would be without hope. We couldn't do it. But that's not the case. The Great Commission is the commission of the new covenant given to us by our covenant Lord and under his authority. And the book of Hebrews says that the new covenant is a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So we've seen that there are connections between the new covenant and the old covenants. But there's also a difference. The old covenants contained stipulations, conditions, and sanctions for disobedience. The new covenant contains only blessings. There are no threats of, or sanctions in the new covenant. The curse has been dealt with. Christ has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, Paul says in Colossians 2. What this means is that the commands of the new covenant will be kept. There's no possibility of failure. The church will obey the Great Commission. Christ will build his church. 
Matthew 16, 18, Christ will lead many sons to glory. Hebrews 2, 8, Christ will bless the nations. Galatians 3, 8, individuals may fail, but the church will not because Christ is with his church and will see to it that it keeps his commandments. We, we need not worry that we'll fail as Adam did in the garden because we're not given the commission to be a bunch of second Adams running around trying to take dominion over the earth and, and create worshipers under our own steam. No, Christ is the second Adam, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So the Great Commission is unlike the previous commissions and covenants because it promises an unconditional blessing. There's no threat of failure. The blessing is sure. Christ is God with his church. He will empower his church to keep his commandments. He will guide his church. He will preserve his church to the end of the age. Now, this doesn't in any way lessen our obligation to obedience. There are covenant commands that we are obligated to obey. But it gives us an assurance of success. Christ is with us. His spirit dwells in us, in each individual believer and in the church as a whole. This is why Paul can write such things as he does at the end of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? Will those things stop missions? Will they stop the task of the church? No, because Paul continues and says, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Even as Christians are, are persecuted and killed for the sake of Christ, Paul says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church will persevere. The gospel will triumph. People of all the nations will come to Christ in faith. doesn't matter if we go next door across town or around the globe, Christ is with us and he will build his church. If we put the emphasis on going to the nations, we might miss the depth and the glory of the promise that Christ is with us no matter where we go. If we see the Great Commission in its larger scriptural context as the covenantal promise that it is, Christ declaring himself to be our covenant God, commanding our obedience, and unconditionally promising his presence with his church. This should only deepen 
our passion for global missions. But it should do more than that. It should expand our vision to see that the Great Commission encompasses all of the earth, not just the nations on the other side of it, but our neighbors next door as well. And it should give us confidence that no matter where Christ sends us, all the earth is his, and he goes with us no matter where we set foot. Emmanuel, the Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And Christ assures us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray.